you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Seminaries handle their curriculum different ways. They organize and structure and prioritize different courses depending on what they think uh, should build on top of one another. Uh, some seminaries start out with systematic theology. They're going to teach you the fundamental truths of the faith and then teach you biblical interpretation. You're going to dive in and learn how to uh, exegete the scriptures. Others start with Bible. We're going to learn the story of Scripture, how to uh, dig out the truths for it, and then we're going to figure out how to put them into categories that we call theology. Uh, When I went through Asbury, they kind of uh, layered upon layer. We started out with basic biblical introduction and uh, inductive Bible study, and once we got those uh, kind of baby steps in, then we took what was called basic Christian doctrine. Uh, This is the fundamental truths uh, that Christians throughout time have held. From there, we learned exegesis, more advanced level biblical interpretation. And then we would go to take method and praxis in theology, where we learn to do the work of theology, to, to not just know truths, but to think theologically. And from there, then we would move to our preaching classes, where theoretically, we bring all this to bear, where we uh, bring our skills in reading the text, these truths that have been held throughout time, uh, our, our knowledge of the languages, and then how to think theologically about a text uh, to the text draw out the homiletical truth, and then come preach it. 96 graduate hours, uh, and that's how they, uh, they took us through it. Uh, with my friends, we like to wrestle about what we think we should teach first in the church. Do we teach people Bible first or theology first? Because uh, if, if we teach theology first, you're going to come with those presuppositions, right? If we say that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, when you come to the text, you're going to think God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. If we come to the text first and you read uh, something there, then that's going to inform your theology. Teddy Ray thinks theology comes first. You need some basic Christian doctrine uh, before you come to the text because it's going to help you avoid the the major heresies of uh, church history. My inclination is to bring you to the Bible first, to, to see the grand sweep of Scripture and to hear God's story from beginning to end, how we fit into that story, this uh, grand plan of redemption from garden to new creation. I don't think either is right. They, they build on top of one another. The more we uh, come to Scripture, the more we think theologically. The more we think theologically, the more we're able to read Scripture faithfully. I, I tend to spend my time up here uh, from the lens of reading Scripture, from uh, the work of biblical studies. It's, it's my comfort area. It lets me do the, the things with languages that I studied. I should probably draw out the theological thought more often. Uh, And I realized that this week when we came to this passage, uh, I wanted to flee from the, for the hills with this text. I didn't want Kathy to do a children's message. I didn't want to preach on it. I wanted us to do something about loving God and loving others because this one is hard. Parables aren't easy anyway. Parables are at best a, a glimmer of the truth behind them. Parables of God's judgment are even harder. And parables that end with, 
cast them out into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. (sighs) They are difficult. And so I think today I want to try to do in six minutes what takes three semesters at seminary or three weeks in our lay seminary. I want to, to introduce you to Theology 101. This started for me in third grade Sunday school. My mother and Miss Connie Landon told us about God being omniscient, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. What language for third graders? That's about all I remember from that Sunday school. And I don't think I heard those ideas until seminary again. God was all-powerful, all-knowing, and present everywhere. We talked about this in our Jonah study on Wednesday night one night, and it was clear I had bamboozled everybody. By the time we were done, everybody was, was flabbergasted. And we, we, we left, and Deb Rockenbach texted me and goes, you could spend a whole semester talking about that. And so I'm going to now spend five minutes, because I already spent one. I want to talk about God as omnipotent, God as all-powerful. I want to ask the question, how does God use that power? Uh, And I think I want to reframe it just a little bit in terms of God's providence. Does God predestine things in his power or does God allow human free will? Hmm, those are both, both things we hear in scripture, right? Kathy's unfortunately sitting on the front row and I see her eyes starting to twitch just a little bit. The question is, who makes the decisions in our world? I think we can... Uh, best understand this issue of God in terms of a tale of two preachers. Uh, Augustine of Hippo, he's a philosopher, a theologian, eventually a bishop, and he did not come to faith until he was 31. If you're worried about your college-age kids and what they've got going on, Augustine of Hippo, probably the most famous doctor of the church, the one who wrote the city of God, the, the person who has shaped theology more than anyone maybe other than Thomas Aquinas, didn't become a Christian until he was 31. Augustine uh, would name that humans are utterly depraved and uh, absent God's grace, uh, we can do nothing. Augustine's theology leads us that all things are determined and predestined by God. We are not free agents in life. Augustine is one of the preachers. He got in a grand fight with this happy-looking man, Pelagius. He is a theologian at the same time and an ascetic. He thought that we should deny all of our instincts and we should go live kind of hermited off to the side. We should reject the fleshly things. And he thought completely opposite of Augustine. The only grace we need is God giving the law. Beyond that, we are self-determining individuals with free will. We can do anything we choose to. Augustine and Pelagius. We have these two things in thought about how God's power plays out in the world. Uh, Augustine, all things are determined. Pelagius, we, we chart our own course. Uh, I'll go ahead and tell you right now that as Wesleyans, we reject both ends. Uh, Pelagius is a heretic. Uh, to, to say that God is not active, that God is not pouring out grace, and that we can make our own decisions has been rejected universally. He lost the battle and was kicked out of, uh, out of the cool pastor's club. He's a heretic. Augustine ends up being a fundamentalist in today's language. 
uh, our friends who are uh, Southern Baptist, our friends who are Presbyterian, hold this theology, this uh, Reformed Calvinist theology that God predestines all of our faith matters. Somewhere in between is the reality of the divine human dance, the divine human synergism, to use that, that phrase we paid so much money for at seminary. Somewhere in between is the reality of how God's power and our agency intersect. Think about how you talk about God. Well, God had a plan. God must have needed her. God protected me from that car accident. These are very Augustinian, God is doing things language. Think about maybe on the other extreme, I picked my own self up by the bootstraps. I have free will. I'm in charge of my life. In the same sentence, we can utter things that speak to both ends, can't we? This comes out uh, bizarrely in times of crisis. In times of funerals, you will hear people name theology they don't actually believe. You hear it come out in times of national distress. God's got a plan. As Methodists, as Wesleyans, we like to talk about us having free will. So we tend to see ourselves somewhere way down here by Pelagius. God made us and gave us free will to do whatever we wanted. Uh, the probably more accurate classical term from Wesleyans is free grace. That God has poured out his grace freely to all of humanity and then we respond. We tend to act as if we're down here in the semi-Pelagian block. We tend to think that by and large we are the masters of our destiny and occasionally we will evoke God to come in and swoop in and do something for us, Right? We've got it until we don't got it, and then we're going to call God in. More accurately, we're semi-Augustinian. We live right down here. Our, our classical theology is that God is always the first mover. God is always pouring out his grace, grace lavishly. God is the one who enables us to do anything. Absent God, we are totally depraved, but God has not uh, set us into a little divine puppet show where we're going to enact his plan. Instead, God is going to pour out his grace and allow us to accept it, to receive, to receive freedom, to receive wholeness. If we're semi-Pelagian, we have to work our way to heaven or to hell if we understand as semi-Augustinian, what we have to do is avail ourselves of God's free gift of grace. It's an important distinction to understand that God is always the first one moving. God's grace goes before anything we do. We like to talk about provenient grace in the Methodist Church. This is that grace that goes before any decision we can possibly make. And yet God doesn't force his grace upon us. He doesn't mandate coercively that we respond. We don't believe that God has predestined one of us to hell and one of us to heaven. We, we are pretty comfortable with the author of 1 Peter who says, what I have predestined is what I foreknew that you would do. 
God's predestination is God knowing how we would respond to his grace. We are semi-Augustinian. We are uh, believers in God's first grace. This is God's power at play. And it intersects so clearly with God's knowledge, this idea of omniscient, all-knowing God. Uh, What it means is that our God foreknows our future free decisions. This for us, stands over and against uh, our, our Calvinist and Presbyterian friends who would say that God uh, foreknows those divinely predestined events. He, he foreknows because he foreordains it. God knows already how we're going to respond to his grace 20 years from now or 20 minutes from now. And God is omnipresent. He's all present. He exists everywhere, uh, including outside the bounds of time and space. This is the one that starts to get trippy. This is the one that uh, we have to like, really separate our frame of reference, our philosophical thought from, from understanding God. We are bound by time and we are bound by space. The idea that we could know ahead of time what was going to happen uh, just is logically inconsistent because God operates outside of time and space. God can know what is going to happen before it happens without making it happen. And this is also important because it begins to help us understand God's relationship to, to us. God can at the same time stand over and against the whole of the world and stand as the one who holds it all in his hand and yet abide in our hearts. God is transcendent. He, he is large and powerful and yet at the same time he is imminent. He is present with us. I like to think about God's providence, God's foreknowledge, and God's location. These these theological concepts become critical to reading this this parable. Parables are difficult, as we said from the beginning. It's it's using uh, metaphor to try to tell a story. Something is like something. And like means it's not the same, right? It means it's analogous, it's close to, there's some overlap, but it's not exactly the same. And man, there's a lot of things we have to figure out. What is exactly the same in this parable and what is not? The kingdom of heaven is like a master who's going to go out of town and has to figure out what to do with his empire. The, the problem at the very beginning is to compare human master to God, uh, as we've just seen, is problematic because God has a whole lot of characteristics that are very different than human masters, right? God is all-powerful and humanity is not all-powerful. God foreknows exactly what's going to happen and yet human masters do not. And God is present everywhere, whereas human masters go on vacation and are not present back back at the compound. The kingdom of heaven is like a master who's going to go out of town and entrust his wealth to his servants, to tend to and to steward. We, we, I think we rightly understand that this is a, a metaphor for God giving care of the world to his church. Jesus has 
uh, has uh, announced that he's going to die, he's going to raise, and he's going to send to heaven, and then ultimately will come back. And in the in-between time, we're given stewardship of that which is beloved to the divine master. We are entrusted with care of the kingdom. The parable tells that uh, the master gives five talents, two talents, and one talent to three different individuals. Uh, The the text seems a little bit misleading when you read it in the English. Uh, Five gold coins or five bags of gold. One talent, the smallest amount given to its people, is roughly equivalent to 20 years of uh, salary. The master gives someone 200 years of salary. Someone else... 40 years of salary and someone else 20 years of salary to steward while he's away. He goes off and uh, does whatever he's doing and comes back and then goes to the servants and says, how have you done? The one who had received the 10 brings back 10 more and says, look, I've doubled it. And he says, great. Receive your blessing. Come and celebrate. He goes to the one who had been given two. He says, well, look, I've got four now. He says, great. Receive your blessing. Come and celebrate. And he goes to the one. This is the problematic part. If we had just done the ten and the two, we could all be happy, right? We could take this text and we could go sit down and say, kumbaya, things are great. But instead, we have this, this, this servant with the one talent. He comes back to the master and goes, I know you to be hard. You reap where you didn't harvest, where you didn't sow, and you harvest in lands that not yours. I was afraid, and so I buried this money. 20 years worth of salary buried in the ground. And the master says, you evil and wicked servant. You could have at least put it in the bank. If you, if you really thought I harvested where I didn't plant and, you, and I sowed where it wasn't mine, You could have at least put it in the bank. He doesn't even dignify being called hard. Uh, That is not even an issue at hand. Because this master has entrusted lavishly his wealth to these three people. The the three gold coins, or the the, the ten gold coins, the two gold coins, the one gold coins, minimizes the extreme abundant trust this master has in these servants. And it says he entrusted them according to what he knew about them. He knew that they could handle this. This is not a one-talent servant because he is useless and and was was for sure going to fall apart and and had no hope, right? He knew that he was worthy of trusting with 20 years' worth of wages. But he got scared. He misunderstood the nature of the master. He hid the money. He didn't even do like the logical thing, right? Which is to put it in a CD and just hold it there for, tw- for the trip, right? He didn't put it in the uh, E-Trade uh, interest-bearing savings account. He buries it. The metaphor starts to break down when we see the master's ownership of the land versus God's sovereignty over the kingdom of earth, the kingdom of heaven. The, the picture that maybe this landowner didn't own some land, maybe hat and harvest here, is just irrelevant to the metaphor, or it's, it's not analogous. Because in the kingdom, God owns it all. God is present everywhere. 
and it all belongs to him. God who created the heavens and the earth can reap and harvest wherever God chooses to. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of the master. It's not grasping the, uh, the scale and scope of the, the operation. To have on hand 200 240, 250 years worth of salary. This is a major empire. This is covering more than just a clan or a tribe. And he was afraid. For me and Felsha this week, we were talking about this idea of being afraid. And it, it, for both of us, it called us back to Genesis 3. The last time humans misunderstood God and were afraid. They had been told, don't eat from any tree, or you can eat from any tree of the garden, but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent comes along and says, did God really say you shouldn't eat from it? Did he really say you'd die if you do? And so they eat from it. And their immediate reaction is fear. They're naked and they're ashamed. And instead of running towards God, who had been so lavishly generous, they run away from God. They hide away from his voice, and it isn't until God pursues them that they say, here we are. The, the servant with the one talent had misunderstood their master. This master was not hard. Instead, this master was lavishly generous. He gives some of the earnings to the, the servants. He invites them in to this party and seems to say, hey, one talent servant, if you had just put it in the bank, you'd come to the same party. I don't expect you to double it. I don't expect you to do anything. Instead, I expect you to simply receive the gift I've given you. Much like God doesn't expect us to earn our way to heaven, God expects us to receive his grace. He doesn't expect us to live down in the heretical end of Pelagianism where we have to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, where we have to be good enough, where we have to fix things. Instead, he expects us to live down on the semi-Augustinian end of God's providence where God's grace goes before us and God lavishes it abundantly and we simply have to receive it and care for it. The master is not a hard master who wanted to banish people from being around. And, and he seems to be a, a master who wants to invite them into a party to celebrate and to receive even more. Those who have been faithful, God, are, or God, in the parable, it's a master, right? Uh, those who have been faithful, it, they're lavished with more things, more grace in our parlance. Parables are hard. This parable is harder. Because it names that ultimately we can reject God's grace. We can, we can fail at even putting the money in the bank. It names that ultimately there is a reckoning with how we deal with that which the master gives us. And it even names that some will not go into the party. Some will not enter into new creation. But it speaks so much more to the master's desire to welcome in his servants to his parting. To enter into his abundance, to experience his blessing and to receive it generously.
Most of my life, I lived way on the Pelagian end of the scale where I had to get it all right. It's almost paralyzing. I understand the, the, the servant who feared that he had to get it right or that God was going to be angry. My hope is that each of us comes to live down on the semi-Augustinian side of the scale where we know that God has led the way with grace and that God knows exactly what we're going to do so there is no reason to hide from it. God foreknows the results of our future free actions. So God knows what you have done and what you will do. And so there is no reason to flee from God, to hide and think that he is angry or wrathful. Instead, it is to, to turn to him and, and seek his face. And, and unlike the servant, though our God has gone away, though our God is uh, transcendent, though Christ has ascended, he's not left us absent him. That master was not available to those servants. He couldn't go and say, I'm scared, what do I do with this one talent? Our master, our God, has remained available to us, has left his spirit as an advocate, as a comforter, one who we can, one who we can draw upon day after day, one who will testify to us that we are beloved, who will enable us to receive God's grace. Day after day after day, God is going to lavish us with grace. He's going to pour out his love on us. We don't have to earn our way. We simply have to avail ourselves of that grace and be faithful to what he has called us to. I think maybe that's part of when I began to appreciate the Lord's table a bit more. Earlier in my life, it was just a, a retelling of a story. Uh, at one point in my life, it was something that took up too much time in worship and we didn't get to sing more songs. The older I've gotten, the more I realize it is God moving ahead of us and lavishing us with his grace, inviting us to be partners in his kingdom, to steward it while we await his return. This simple bread and this simple cup our glimmer of the lavish party that God has in mind for us. This heavenly banquet that we talk about in our liturgy. Our story matters. Theology matters. What we say about God shapes how we live. If we think we have to do it, Fear is the natural outpouring. Exhaustion is inevitable. And failure. Failure will happen. But if we trust that God will pour out his grace ahead of us, if we accept that grace and and are faithful to what we've been called to, God awaits celebrating with us and delights in us and will lavish us with even more grace. Grace.